This is your strange and beautiful life. Oh, you're really good, right? Um, <laughs> hi, everybody, and welcome to This is Your Strange and Beautiful Life. My name is Erica J. Schmidt, and on my podcast, I talk to people who may or may not have had the chance to transform their lives into spectacular TED Talks. And today, my guest is the famous author Daniel Allen Cox, who wrote the popular, brand new, almost brand new memoir called I Felt the End Before It Came. And we're going to talk to Daniel. You're going to hear all about him in just a minute. We're going to take a quick and very fun break, and we'll be right back. Okay, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the other side. Okay, love you, bye. Hi, everyone. It's Erica, and welcome to our very fun break. So today's marvelous guest, Daniel Allen Cox, wrote a marvelous book called I felt the end before it came. And you are going to hear all about it. And immediately you are going to think to yourself, I need to get my hands on this book as soon as possible. And I have excellent news for you because as my cherished listener, you get the chance to win a free signed hardcover copy of I felt the end before it came. It's so exciting. So what you need to do is hit up my Instagram or Facebook page. Okay, that's step one. Instagram is at erica.j.schmidt. Facebook is search my name, you'll find me. And I want you to scroll down and look for the video where I am waving around Daniel's book like a zealot and follow the instructions for your chance or chances to win. As usual, competition is wildly fierce, so please enter now and enter often. And before we get to the show, please remember to follow This Is Your Strange and Beautiful Life on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and or Amazon Music. This is so important for the podcast. And while you're at it, a kind and enthusiastic five-star review is a generous gift for our times. Okay, so now we're back, and as promised, I have Daniel Allen Cox here. Daniel Allen Cox is a prolific and beloved Montreal-based author. He has written and published one novella and four highly acclaimed novels. Daniel grew up as a Jehovah's Witness in the suburbs of Montreal, and as Daniel writes, I spent 18 years in a group that taught me to hate myself. You cannot be queer and a Jehovah's Witness. It's one or the other. Daniel's memoir in essays, I Felt the End Before It Came, dives into what it's like to be raised to reject yourself or else reject the only world you ever known. Published in May of 2023, the book was a finalist for the Grand Prix du Livre de Montréal, I read the book. It's a gripping read. It has had two book launches already. I loved it. And I am so thrilled to have author Daniel Ellen Cox 
on This Is Your Strange and Beautiful Life. Welcome to the show, Daniel. How are you doing? Thank you for coming. I'm well, Erica. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. What a blast. Okay. So your book is about your experience as a Jehovah's Witness. Yes. And most people have had Jehovah's Witnesses knock at their door. They have some familiarity with it. I know for me, in the early 90s, grade one, Mrs. Vandenbosch's class, there was a little girl named Michelle who was a Jehovah's Witness. And then that was back when we were allowed to eat sugar at school. So like every time it was a birthday, they'd bring cupcakes, but Michelle was not allowed to have the cupcakes. And she would just sit there with her head on the table until everybody ate their cupcakes. And that was it. But you have like, you have a very excellent introduction to Jehovah's Witnesses at the very beginning of your memoir. So I'm going to read that. Okay. Sure. I'm going to read. Okay. Thank you. So page one, everybody, if you're following along with your book. Okay. The letter. Most people know Jehovah's Witnesses as the people who stand on street corners with literature carts, telling strangers they can live forever on a paradise earth. They're the neighbors who believe that at Armageddon, which is coming any day now, Jehovah and his son, Jesus, will literally kill billions of non-witnesses and leave their bodies to rot in the street. They don't vote because the new world that follows will make elections obsolete. Others know them as the patients in hospitals who refuse blood transfusions at the risk of death. They're the ever-smiling Christians who don't celebrate birthdays and who don't send their kids to university because they would be better served by studying The Watchtower, the flagship magazine of The Watchtower Society, the group that controls all witness life and is the sole source for what it calls the truth. I, on the other hand, will always know the witnesses, JWs for short, as the people who watched as I was baptized at age 13 in an inflatable Canadian tire pool in a minor league hockey arena at the group's 1989 district convention in Ottawa. I shivered in the waist-deep water, marveled at the utter cheapness of the pool, and thought, this must be the way to paradise. Two hunks in clingy swimwear and white t-shirts grabbed and dunked me. Later, when friends and family asked if I'd felt anything, I said I did, but it wasn't the feeling they thought it was. So that's like a punchy beginning. That was good. Did that take you? How long did that take you? Oh, I, oh, I don't remember. No? <laughs> Just like... You remember. Okay. It's probably um, pieced together over time in different, you know, different uh, bits and bobs of writing. And you so it, I'm sure it was originally like in the middle of the book or at the end, and then I moved it forward and added... Pe- Added pieces to it or something like that. Little pieces. It didn't, yeah. yeah, it didn't just come out right away. It was like, no. Yeah. Okay. No, it's good. Good beginning. That's it. Like sometimes you put your, your best stuff comes like later on and then you got to like yeah. transport it because you need mm-hmm. a good, good opener. But do you think people need to know anything else about Jehovah's Witnesses? Yes. So that stuff is, is uh, really lives on the surface of who they are and it's their, it's their uh, public face. But mm-hmm. I mean, a large part of this book is about um, questioning what like a public face is and uh, not just for a group uh, like Jehovah's Witnesses but but also for their like adherence as well right so mm-hmm. so that that's the version of them that we all know right, right because right. we all see it but mm-hmm. uh, 
it was kind of more important for me to describe what goes on like behind the scenes right. and, and especially what goes on mentally, right? Mm-hmm. So something I tried to illuminate in the text over the course of the different essays and and uh, not just by by like um, writing about my life, but also doing research into what's happened in the group in the years since I've left mm-hmm. is to analyze how they handle and how they use cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. in their members, right? So it's um, something we can talk more about, but it gets down to like a core issue of of asking members to be of the world or to be in the world, but not of it, Mm -hmm. right? And this is based on a commandment from... Um, Jesus, uh, of all people, to be, <laughs> to be uh, yes, our friend, <laughs> to be uh, no part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where all the issues stem from, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is told that we have to live in two places at once, to, um, to uh, live for like a, f- a future paradise, and yet somehow go to work, somehow go to school. To be told that everybody around you is evil, and will die, mm-hmm. and you'll have to bury their their um, corpses one day when God kills them at Armageddon, you know? mm-hmm. and Jesus, our friend, kills them at Armageddon. <laughs> um, and yet, you still have to go to to uh, big sales with them and parent teacher meetings, you know, and stuff like that, and the skating rinks. And so, how do you reconcile those worlds? And and I feel that that's where most of the issues lie is in asking people to to silo their experience in that way. Right. And just like part of it is like you are so special, right? Like the, you're yeah. labeled as special when yeah. you're like two, right? When you're born, right? And it's like... If you're born into it, yes, right? exactly. And, yeah. and then you're kind of walking around like, did you feel like you were better than everybody else? Like, as mm. a... That's a very good question. Um, I think if you ask the, uh, the uh, typical... Re- rank and file Jehovah's Witness, they would answer no. But I think that's a bit untrue, actually. You know, mm-hmm. there's a kind of a su- superiority and it's actually like a moral superiority, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea is that, is that we follow God's laws unlike you all. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's our job to, to, to kind of uh, convert you. And that's, you know, and that's kind of the hubris behind their door-to-door preaching and behind their like they're like a global missionary work mm-hmm. um, and it's a terribly colonial project as well right it's right colonialist project to to go into countries like around the world um and to sp- spread messages and to and to deliver magazines and books written mostly by like a white hierarchy right mm-hmm. um to countries everywhere telling them that th- they're living their their lives wrong. And thinking back to when I was a preacher, actually actually most of my preacher my preaching was done when I was like a teenager. And mm-hmm. I occasionally went alone, uh knocking on doors. And that wasn't really part of the policy, but there were times I couldn't actually actually find anyone who was like who was like free to go with me. And so mm-hmm. I would go alone, which was against the rules. And then I would be be uh, knocking on doors and then this like adult would answer the door 
and I would start telling them how, how to live their lives, right? <laughs> and you're like 15. Yeah. Right. Or 13. And then I can see like a smile gradually growing on their faces, you know, and like, hmm, this kid thinks he knows what's good for me, you know. Right. And and sometimes I had people actually actually talk to me for like a long time, and now I know part of it was I think I think I think humoring me. Yeah. Oh, I've done that with Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. We now we have a big sign that says we don't none of this because they were coming like once a week for a while. Yeah. And they were like, so what did you think of there? Remember that bus tragedy last year where it was terrible. Some yeah. guy drove a bus into a daycare and yeah. it was awful. Right. And and he then he's like, well, what do you? How are you feeling about that? And it's just like kind of like pulling at your like if you don't feel something, you're yeah. a real jerk. And it's like. Right. And I said, you know, I just feel kind of like, did I say absurd? I felt like it was surreal. I was just right. like, there's been so many things like that since I was younger. And I mm-hmm. always wanted to be the kind of person who saved the world. But now I'm just like, I got to get my life done. I got to do my, yeah, like, I got to pay for my apartment. I got to see my people. I just, I'm my, my dreams are smaller now. But I told them I'd had a Jesus stage and they were very happy. Oh, I, yeah. I see. But then they left and they don't, yeah. But it's like they come, they, it's like they're acting like, like, I don't want to, I almost said real people. That's terrible. But they're acting like they're, they're trying to like connect with you as though yeah. like you're on the same level, but they're, then it's kind of manipulative. Like, yeah. Yeah. So the other thing I would say that, that uh, people should uh, know about Jehovah's Witnesses, in addition to the cognitive dissonance that like, that like lies underneath everything that they do is that they're also victims, right? So, mm-hmm. so this is a group that actually believes in the in the um, doctrines that they're preaching, including everyone at the top. Mm-hmm. They also believe, and so all of the people in charge of it are also victims, which mm-hmm. which actually makes things a, a bit complicated. But to further complicate it. Nobody approaches the rules with the same fervor, intensity, interpretation. So there are probably thousands of versions of being a Jehovah's Witness, mm-hmm. right? With different levels of empathy, different levels of letting the the outside world in, mm-hmm. um, and with different levels of self-awareness. And I think integration into what you or I would call or use as philosophy right so mm-hmm. so that's where i find empathy with a lot of them if i was tempted as like a younger writer to be very impatient with the jehovah's witnesses but now you feel like you have more like of a broader perspective of them as just like humans who've been like would you say brainwashed is that allowed like or like indoctrinated what's the um um, I would say like indoctrinated, yeah, for okay, sure. You know? Okay. And I see people who um who kind of uh break the rules, right? Because uh-huh. they know that it doesn't kind of the rules to shun or the the uh, rules to let's say deny people like your schoolmate from having like a birthday party, right? Mm-hmm. Or like birthday cupcake, like as innocent as a cupcake, right? For a six year old, right? For a six year old, which is a huge thing, right? Like yeah. there's sprinkles, Excluded, I mean there's icing, yeah. it's the entire world, right? Um so yeah, there are are witnesses whose whose uh, personal ethics don't 
align with the the um, rules that they're taught to enforce. Mm-hmm. And they realize that, and they then enforce the rules poorly in s- s- small acts of rebellion, whether or not they're even like aware that they're doing that. And it's just each person's way to um, um, navigate how to live with these impossible rules. Yeah. You know, example would be, yeah, you know, either me um, knowing I'm queer and then mm-hmm. going door to door, handing out like magazines that say homosexuality is, you know, detestable in God's sight. Right. right? The greatest, the greatest sin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So holding those, those uh, two things at once. Contradictions. Is enough to make anybody, you know, crack, right? Yeah, right. And like one of the rules is like life or death, right? Because you're not allowed to have a blood transfusion, right? right? And yeah. I mean, you could get lucky. I've never needed a blood transfusion. Lots of people right. don't need blood transfusions. But right. when you were 10, your mother was like hemorrhaging to death. Yes. She needed, and like one blood transfusion could have fixed, or maybe two, right? But she was like yeah. dying. Right. And not allowed. God didn't want her to have this blood transfusion. So she didn't have it. And then your whole family came with their juicers making (laughs) beet sludge and carrot sludge because that has iron in it, which I'm not even sure that's true. I think that might be a vegan urban legend, but maybe not. You know, it's Hmm, like, I don't think it's bioavailable, but I don't know. Not a health, well, I used to be a health expert, but like they just prayed that her blood would be okay. And she was okay. But like, that is very traumatic, right? But you... Like, maybe you don't remember it. Maybe you block things out. But you don't remember being terrified that she would die. Like, your big concern was that you're, you might end up stuck with your stepdad or something yeah. like this. Like, do, what do you remember about yeah. that time? The fear wasn't there. It was just, like, a lot of memories of um, of the juicer, you know. And, and like, <laughs> you know, what hospital would let a juicer into the emergency ward, right? In the, like, you this know? was not, like, maybe now. In the ER, in, right? in the 80s, right? Like... She was barely out of ICU, yeah. and yeah, and on top of that, it was a Catholic hospital. It was like Santa Cabrini Hospital, which is like a which one a is super it? Catholic, Santa Cabrini Hospital. Oh, I don't know where so that is. So it was is. like a super Catholic hospital okay. in Montreal, right? Okay. And the fact that they even let this juicer in was just right wild. Um, so I remember a lot of the shenanigans around that, and my uncle and I. Sk- scamming like a um a soda machine for for uh ch- change and things like that mm-hmm. so these were maybe things that were i think put in my way to to distract me okay from the seriousness of what was going on the other thing i believed is that and all witnesses believe is that uh, death isn't real so oh. if you're a jehovah's witness and if you die you will be resurrected in paradise. So all of our funerals, they weren't, um, they weren't really uh, eulogies. They weren't like l- lamenting the uh, person. You weren't who bereft because it's like, well, we'll I see think you on the other side. Were bereft, but it was all s- smiles. We're told to keep our Ugh. chins up. If we just um, practice everything according to how we're taught, then we will see the, them in the resurrection, which is when um, witnesses who are dead and those who hadn't had time to to hear the kingdom message prior to their own deaths 
would literally rise from the grave. So bones and sinew and skin forming right before us. Flying. Yes. Okay. So this utterly um, mystical process of resurrection was our hope. So um, there actually weren't even like like many flowers at the, you know, at the, at the funerals, you know. So, so for us, death wasn't real, except if it was a wicked person dying, right? And then they'd go to hell? Where would they go? Um, this is a good question because the doctrine is always changing, but <laughs> the, they don't believe in hell. They believe in um, eternal death, right? So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so just, you know. But, I mean, it's, all, it's always changing, right? So they're... Okay. Yeah, given that that nothing makes sense, they continually have to reinvent their like their like death theology. Death story. Okay, exactly. there's probably a special word from that, not eschatology. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, Th- it's, thana- like that. it's thanatology. Thanatology. That's, That's what it great, is, uh, right? I think. Anyways, it must be it. Yeah. So, as to what I was thinking, Erica, that's incredibly hard to access at the moment, but I do think that um. I was worried at some point. I was told not to be worried, but I think I was worried. And it was more about having to live with my stepdad. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think, I think later in time, when I began to realize how close that my mother was to actually dying, um, she spun it into a martyrdom. So mm. I believed so much. I did things so right that uh, Jehovah God rewarded me by, by not letting me die. Sparing my life right? by playing the rules. And did you, did you buy that? Yeah. Okay, right, because she spun that. Okay. Absolutely. And then like when so you... So even then, death wasn't real because if you follow the rules, right? So that, of course, doesn't explain the thousands of, of, um, of uh, witnesses and kids mm-hmm. who, who've actually died died over the years, right, because of refusing a blood transfusion, which we were never told about. I didn't have internet at the time, you know? Yeah, that's the most So these facts weren't painful. actually readily available to me, right? Yeah, that's what's so painful about any, like, you know, the manifesting vision board, any kind of ideology like that. It's like, we earned it, but then the other people didn't, right? And it's like, you know, the suckers that didn't pray hard enough, right? Like, they yeah. succumbed to their illnesses, so, but then were you very angry when you got, like, when you were, like, after you stopped believing and you were just, like, like, did that bring up, like, sort yeah. of, like, yeah. like post-traumatic situation? Because you were, like, forced into believing this thing and then you were, like, actually, I almost lost my mother. Like, Yeah, totally. So, so I left in the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. I then mentally shelved it for, like, about 10 years. Mm-hmm. In the early 2000s, I started actually researching online, finding mm-hmm. groups and support groups, ex ex Jehovah's Witnesses on Live Journal, on Reddit. Oh, on, Live Journal was Reddit even around the time? I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> right. Um, and then I got angry, right? Yeah. And then I got even too angry to properly process things. Right. And then I put it away again. Uh huh. Until recently. Okay. So basically, this is my um, second go at kind of uh, processing everything I've been through. And because of the passage of time, um, 
I can do so without the anger I had in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And with 25 years of just understanding how my life has gone, understanding the motivations of a different members of my family, including my mom, you know, mm-hmm. and just understanding what uh, they've been through in their lives and their traumas and their victimhoods and mm-hmm. um, what they're responding to in right. life, right? And that has given me like a lot of insight, right? And right. a lot of um, empathy. And if I'm going to use a Christian word for the uh, sake of our friend Jesus, once again, I would even <laughs> say forgiveness, right? Which yeah. is, um, and that would also have to include self-forgiveness, right? Right. And, and you know, I like to think I'm a smart person person but I think so. at the same time if i if i look at the uh, course of my life and by the things i've been duped by you know it is also kind of embarrassing even mm. being raised in it right right um it's embarrassing and so so it actually this uh, book feels a bit l- like a coming out like here are 200 pages of the things I've been duped by, but of course I wouldn't be duped by them now. Right. Right. <laughs> right. right. Um, but I mean, like, would I, you know, and somebody asked me this uh, recently, like, if you hadn't gotten out, what, where would you be now? Mm-hmm. And I just instinctively knew the answer, which I never really realized, but it just came to, to my consciousness. Like I said, that I would be one of the Jehovah's Witness hierarchy. <laughs> Like you would have gone to the top, you think? I think I would have been actually motivated to, yes. Right. Yeah. You know, based on my inclination to write, based on on my inclinations to be like a public speaker, um, mm-hmm. based on my desire to uh, to write fiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so the anger is gone it flares up, it flared up during the research process Mm -hmm. when, you know, I realized who are the other people in my life that are impacted by the story? How are my partners affected? Um, What do they live through as uh, partners of a person that had like a cultish upbringing Mm -hmm. and and also having to deal with my family? Oh, yeah, yeah. On this ongoing Mm -hmm. basis and... And what's that like? And like, and like, yeah, I know that they like us, but do they really like queer people? Because on paper it says that they don't. Right, right because... So it's very difficult, right? And I won't go into that too much because it's, you know, there's like a privacy matter there. But, mm-hmm. but it's very... Um, I'm once again, Erica, having to live in two worlds at once. Right. right? With this very tenuous relationship with a family that has not completely shunned me, f- for which I'm thankful, mm-hmm. but at the same time, having to live life still after doing all this talking about everything I'm I'm uh, talking with you here about, having to live according to to uh, their terms, mm-hmm. and that keeps me just a little bit angry, and probably um, motivated enough uh, to continue talking about this. Right. Because, like, yeah, your family didn't completely shun you, which is, like, an example of how there's some flexibility, right, in the in the rules. Uh, but you, like, I guess 
I don't know when you came out or when you, when I don't remember exactly when you discovered you were gay, but it's like at a certain point you're a teenager and it's like, I'm gay and this is not allowed. Right. And so like, how did you, did you have like a, a plan that do you think like, I'm just going to keep going higher into this religion? Like, cause you knew that it's like you said, it's not compatible, right. To be yeah. queer and Jehovah's witness. So what, like as a teenager, before you got caught, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. what, what, how did you see that? Yeah, no, there actually was no plan. It was just a, um, a dawning awareness, right. Of mm-hmm. my own sexuality. And it, came to my attention and uh, and I acted on it with a lot of interest with a lot of mm-hmm. zeal as uh as we would say um as as we do at that age too right <laughs> yes 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 i yes but i had no plan uh-huh. i just figured i i uh keep on ministering and i keep on lusting after men and Never the twain shall meet. Uh, right. right. But I mean, look, you know, it's not it, it's not uh, my fault f- for believing that a world of silos can stay intact. Mm-hmm. I was taught to build a world of silos. Right. So how could I be blamed for for having built one, you know, around being queer, right? Yeah. And yeah, so I didn't plan. I didn't think that, you know... I would ever be caught. And um, now I realize I was probably trying to be caught, right? Right. But even then, I I didn't think, hmm, after I'm out, where will my friends be? Mm-hmm. Who will they be? What will my supports be? Um, what are the dangers of being a gay man in Montreal in the 90s? I didn't know. I didn't research. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't even that that curious and um and then again this like this like serial incuriosity mm-hmm. c- comes from being raised in a group that only reads its own literature right, right. so <laughs> right <laughs> or anything outside so isolated. had to be like innocuous it had mm-hmm. to be um reader's digest or it had to be like a crossword puzzle or it had to be like a newspaper right mm-hmm. but even the the newspaper was kind of like looked at with a bit of um, skepticism. Racy. We weren't forbidden from reading other things, but um, we didn't have time to mm-hmm. read everything else because three meetings a week. Right. Um, arguably five. So, but like a lot of magazines to read every week, a lot of uh, books to read every week. So where do we have time to, or where do I have time to learn about um the AIDS crisis, mm-hmm. you know? right? Yeah, or to learn about um, ACT UP, or you know, where could I find support mm-hmm. outside this group in the age before the internet? Right, <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, just uh, I had no plan. No plan. Yeah, because that and that's one of the cult's characteristics, right? They make you so busy and often tired to it, so demanding that you can't. You, you you lose yeah. your other resources and networks. Exactly. There's no way of no. of having a a wider support network or just a wider perspective. But like it seemed very kind of ruthless, like in terms yeah. of you getting sort of given the boot. Or um, we'll talk about the language in a second. But sure. you just said that you were just bowling, which I love bowling, uh, and. 
and you told your your fellow Jehovah's Witness bowling friend, you said her, you complimented her boyfriend's appearance, right? Mm-hmm. You said he was good looking. Mm-hmm. And then like within a week or a few days, an elder's calling you and being mm-hmm. like, you're a homosexual. You have two choices. <laughs> yes. So yeah, what were your choices and what did you decide to do? Yeah. So the choices I was offered was to be what's called disfellowshipped. Mm-hmm. And that's like a, um, a form of official congregation discipline where you have to basically not, you're not spoken to mm-hmm. right, by anyone in the congregation, except for maybe like an elder who does like a periodic check-ins with you to see if you are like repenting enough <laughs> or your family, except if it's to ask about things like laundry. Okay. Day-to-day. Right. Day-to-day logistics. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're like within the community, they don't talk to you except for those like logistics. And, and if you're not living at home, if you're, if you're like, like uh, living on your own, then you basically cut off, right? Um, until you repent, until such day that you realize w- what you've done wrong and mm-hmm. you make amends and you attend meetings silently in the back and leave as soon as it's over so no one can talk to you. You are, you are literally like a spiritual ghost, right? Mm-hmm. In the kingdom hall, which is the... the um, um, word to describe like our centers of, of worship. Oh, These, yeah, they're like, everywhere. Windowless buildings, quickly built, and and I find that there's like a lot of uh, symbolism in their lack of windows. But we can get to that later. And they don't are they like dingy, like the hockey arena? Like is it, it like sort of bare? Like sometimes cults have very like they are yeah. very lofty in their words, but their actual sure. facilities are kind of. It's bare actually bones. pretty Protestant. Like it's okay. pretty bare bones, but I mean. Um, not ugly and actually okay. very, very well made, just okay. uh, quickly constructed, right? Um, With no windows. Using volunteer unpaid Oh, labor. yeah, lots of unpaid so labor. There's a lot of, That's another cult thing. Yes, if you're doing exactly. a lot of things for free, yes, you exactly. might be in a cult. And if you're also asking to or asked to give uh, money on top of that, so oh, yeah. giving your money, giving your time, giving up all of your agency education you tell me what that is yeah you know? okay <laughs> so so this was like one of my options i immediately knew it wasn't for me mm-hmm. the other option i was given was to disassociate and that's more of an of like a nuclear option mm-hmm. um and i find it telling that it was offered to me so so what this means is i would write a letter saying why i no longer want to be one of jehovah's witnesses and I don't think that that's actually usually offered, you know, just so freely on the phone. And what that tells me is that the elder who um, called me, and this is highly unusual right. um, to have like a disciplinary hearing over the phone. I'm told it's not done, right? But it was done in my case. Usually more steps kind of? Or? You meet in person and you meet like a committee of elders and mm-hmm. then they... And then they counsel you and then you confess your sins and then they meet privately and then they get together with you again and say, okay, here's what's going to happen. But no, it, it was a phone call. It was also very short. It was mm-hmm. either like either like five or 10 minutes. And he knew that I was, <laughs> you know. That you wanted to I go? I was on the way out. Yeah. Do, and I you think, think he could tell. I think and do you think he, he was going to just like, kind of like 
to, to allow you to go without, cause he said at the end, he said, he, I said, well, he said, I love you. Don't get AIDS. Right. Something yeah. like this. Yes, like, yes, yes exactly. Yeah. And did you, were you close to this person? Like, yeah, it was. And yeah, and also he was a friend of my grandfather's and, you know, right. so was it hostile? The, there's a lot of family history. Or? Not at all. Not at right. all. No, it was rather avuncular, you know, I mean, if anything, but, um, but I think that he just seen too many of us queers make our way out, you know, out of what's called the truth, you know, mm-hmm. and he, he, I guess like knew it was uh, futile to, to um, ask me to change or ask me to repent your sexuality to, for to one year, right? It takes a year or something like this. Usually a year. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, it kind of depends how like repentant you are. If you relapse, if you're caught, if you're caught, like making out with someone. Yeah. You know? This so, sounds very tedious for everyone involved. It sounds very tedious. It's just like a, a high surveillance culture, right? Right. Where, where like people are reporting on one another, right? Mm-hmm. And that's also a, like another a warning sign, right? And if you're in a group where you're asked to like report on your friend's behavior, mm-hmm. there's obviously something very, very wrong with that, right? Yeah, yeah. They have that in Scientology a little bit, right? Yeah. There's like this sort of somebody's watching and then exactly. you'll have to go yeah. audit and yeah. yeah, okay. So I guess I knew that option two was for me. Mm-hmm. And so did he, and we probably exchanged s- smiles over the f- over the phone call without realizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I knew it was over, and then I had to do it. And so I'd obviously line this up f- f- for myself in some way. I'd obviously put myself into that position, mm-hmm. and and I was also kind of like ready and not ready at the same time. Right. I mean, I mean, as I mentioned, I had like no plans, so obviously. I wasn't ready in that sense. Were you living at your with your mother? Yeah. Okay, and you continued to live there for a while. Okay. For a while, yeah. Uh-huh. Until uh-huh. I uh, I later moved out on my own. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just it's just um, for when you're in that moment of having to make a decision. Um, so few of us raised in cults have that crossroads, mm-hmm. right? Um, a lot of us just like drift out or drift out and drift back in after a while, mm-hmm. right? So having something that would force me in that way was um, an option that I think I think uh, not everybody has, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was, I think, like a kernel of resistance within me that that made itself manifest and helped to pierce the armor that I so carefully put onto my body, right? Mm-hmm. This like spiritual armor um, guarding against the world. Well, well, this like queerness was a direct interaction with the world because mm-hmm. it couldn't be interaction within the congregation. Mm-hmm. And so it it's um, forced me to reach even like further into the world. Um, mm-hmm. And by that, I mean Montreal's gay village, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, but so few people have that opportunity. Right. They'll just be in the cult forever kind of thing but there's kind of a gift yeah but it's interesting like the the dissociation the word dissociation right because we often use that in trauma recovery right it's like oh i dissociated like during the assault or whatever and so that i couldn't i couldn't feel what was happening but then it's a different usage of the word yeah and then and it goes back to the jehovah's witnesses use of lingo right to Mm -hmm. 
to kind of uh, create this sense of belonging, right? As mm-hmm. as like I'm not sure if you've read Amanda Montel's Cultish, right? But um, all these groups who who uh, y- use these highly specialized lexicons yeah. to to one make you feel like you belong, um, to allow members to police outsiders like hey this person isn't really using our language Mm -hmm. maybe they're just like an imposter or maybe they don't belong here right Mm -hmm. or maybe they've um they've um stopped believing in their hearts and now they're apostates right right oh the apostate word is out right so um yeah yeah, the I wanted to talk about language yeah, and the importance, right? And like the like the platitudes, the code right. words, and it's like part of being special and part of like uh, just being in, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you went to Poland to teach ESL. I did, and so like two things there because Poland's very Catholic, right? And it's also a new, a different language, different culture. Yeah. And then like ESL has a lot of sort of formulas, and like there's a bit of like evangelical feelings of that. Mm-hmm. Would you say like, sentiments like we're going to teach English? Like, there, yes. you know, there's like, it probably missionary has... Missionary a bit. Right? Yeah, missionary, yeah. And it has its own language also. Yeah. And so you're in Poland. This is like your late 20s, I think, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, and then... And this is when you became this is when you became a writer, right? Like you just like started to write around the time, yeah. Uh, the, this was the novella about mm-hmm. the the queer Jehovah's Witnesses in Florida. Yep. Uh, yeah. And and you just like wrote and wrote and wrote that, right? It was like a writing binge, like writers writers dream. Yeah. But like, what do you think? Like, I my thirteen therapist, she says that, and I think also you wrote this in the book that that having new like having new language, learning a new language getting out of the language of the cult or mm. the like, you know, abusive relationship or whatever it is can reprogram your pathways and like make new connections in your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, like what was it about that experience that led you to suddenly write and be a writer? Like, were you a writer before? Did you like, yeah, like I started writing, um, short stories and, and, mm-hmm. uh, publishing them as early as I think 2003. Okay. Yeah. So, then I was in Poland the year after, and so I just began writing fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I was just on the path to becoming a fiction writer when I left Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just I just uh, kept on writing. But then this idea kind of like seized me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this involved like the Smurfs, um, <laughs> you know, which I could explain a bit, right? So in the Satanic Panic in the 80s, the witnesses were were uh, one of the groups that were very scared of the Smurfs mm-hmm. for their supposedly uh, demonic powers, mm-hmm. and so this idea kind of uh, captured me from like a fiction perspective, and that right. was like an entryway into kind of what I'd uh, been through, but only vaguely because I kept it um, centered on characters who were not me, but I was. I was absolutely possessed, if not by the Smurfs, then by the idea um, of I had to finish this while I was in Poland. And so I wrote on my lunch breaks at the school <laughs> at this like communal computer, like mm-hmm. on this. On right, this everybody's sharing a desktop kind of thing. PC, but actually no one was sharing it because I was the only one. <laughs> I was absolutely monopolizing it. <laughs> right. And so 
you know, she just was like, hey, can I check my email? Like, no, I'm writing. Sorry, come back later. Yeah, yeah, you know? no, busy, yeah. And then I would um, print print things out. And of course, I would like leave my documents on the desktop for everyone to read. You know, I mean, I mean, I was a mess, right? <laughs> um, I would never do that, do that uh, now, of course. But, you know, in the age of internet cafe, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Your info was everyone's. <laughs> yeah, it's a right? whole other era. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like, hey, I'm in someone else's email. This is weird. So, yeah. Then I I uh, borrowed my friend's laptop because I didn't have one at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, yeah, like I borrowed his uh, his uh, laptop and typed up things I was writing like by hand in my hand, you know, mm-hmm. in my notebooks. And then I would kind of uh, hold away on my breaks mm-hmm. and not really do like the social things that Mm -hmm. ESL teachers have to do, especially like living overseas. We're like, hey, you know, we're all supposed to kind of hang together. You know, Mm -hmm. it's the quote unquote expat experience, which I have a lot of issues with now. And as a result, I I kind of realized a few things at the same time. I'm like, hmm, this is weird behavior, right? It's a bit cultish. It's a bit... uh, clicky mm-hmm. there's a lot of specialized terminology i've kind of been here before right and the other big thing was just being in in a country so gripped by catholicism mm-hmm. in a way that i did not see in quebec even though it's also huge here it's not huge in the same way and i was there when uh pope john paul ii died mm-hmm. polish pope yes very exactly. popular polish pope pope and the grief was just like huge like lamentations in, right. the, in the streets the entire country mm-hmm. closed for a weekend filled with candles and tributes and i'd never seen something like like this mm-hmm. before and that got me thinking more also like about religion so you know it was all in that swirl that i began to then look online and see hmm are there other extra Jehovah's witnesses out there mm-hmm. And I mean, this is 10 years after I left. Right. Right. So, so as a first f- foray into that world, it was a bit uh, terrifying. And I decided to uh, uh, handle it through, through fiction mm-hmm. as a medium. So it was like, like it was sort of an escape from these two worlds, you think? the Yeah, it was an escape, but also it was a way into it too. Right. right? Yeah. And just uh, a way, a way to process everything. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. And um and also like a way to create uh, interesting fiction or, mm-hmm. or uh, fiction I found interesting, at least anyways. Mm-hmm. And then now I kind of see all the evasions I was doing are all the ways I did not take the opportunity to, to examine what I'd been through, right? Right. And so I still wasn't ready, I think, in the yeah, end. Yeah, to make it like a no. therapeutic or cathartic experience. So you're like writing about the topic, right? Yes. But not your specific experience. Right. And yeah, because the experience of the characters was not really your experience. You say that it wasn't really therapeutic. It wasn't cathartic for you to write the novella. And you, uh, you've written four novels, and one of them is the one that I read is Shuck, which is a hustler. Do you know that I had to look up what a hustler was? I didn't actually know what that was. Like, I haven't lived a sheltered life. But anyways, um, <laughs> and hustler in New York. And so, and I know that there's parallels because you also 
were a hustler in New York, uh, more or less. And I really wanted to know how much I always want to know how much is like the author's experience, how much is fiction. And I just was wondering like whether, like whether in memoir or fiction has writing about your experience been therapeutic? Mm -hmm. Um, that's an interesting question because I think that it's almost as if everything like around writing Mm -hmm. is therapeutic to me, but I'm a bit skeptical about, um, about the concept of focusing on writing to, to be catharsis Mm -hmm. for like a few reasons. One is that if we get a little bit too focused on that idea, then there isn't enough room for the reader Mm -hmm. to have their own journey with the text. And I can sometimes tell when a writer is <laughs> is so focused on their own catharsis that that the reader's kind of like frozen out. Yeah. And it's like, hey, I'm still here. <laughs> right. I'm the one reading the book. Right. What yeah. about me? Um, <laughs> but it, of course, is always cathartic, right? Right. To, to get this out, to find people interested in the story to be able to um, talk about it with my loved ones as I'm writing it mm-hmm. and then to talk about it with them after it comes out. So it's the entire process I find cathartic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the ability to to um, make connections with with uh, people maybe I've been like estranged from mm-hmm. um, who have like uh, gotten like in touch with me after reading something I've written. And that's a always a very interesting process and and I learn from it I grow from it and it's a, it's everything I think like around writing that is mm-hmm. that is uh, taught me to be a better researcher it's uh, taught me I, I need a therapy so so writing is not a substitute for therapy for me I still found I needed like a therapist mm-hmm. and therapists and then I spoke to someone involved in cult recovery I spoke to you know some involved like in relationships and I've learned from all of them, but, but totally different lessons than I would have learned in my writing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's why I'm a bit skeptical about the concept of the writing and catharsis. Writing and And therapy. Okay. I like to trouble it a bit just because I find it's a bigger topic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it's, and so it's not just like, you know, you wrote about your mother in the in the hospital or whatever it was that, that like writing about specific things. It's not necessarily that. It's more like here are some using the ideas from your brain and your life, putting it down, having other people read. Like it's a bigger picture. That's that's the yeah. that's the therapeutic and, part. And then and then I actually learn when I get the feedback mm-hmm. from people to say, oh, how this impacted me or something, you know, mm-hmm. or whenever I I write this book about Jehovah's Witnesses and then I end up hearing from people in 25 or 30 religions and cults for the past year bringing me all of their um, comparisons, mm-hmm. all of their like mirrored and shared experiences. Right. And, and all of their, don't you know that this is exactly how it is in the Amish or in the Latter-day Saints? The parallel, or in this yeah. Cult or in that group, right. you know? Or even in Catholicism, I'm like, hmm, I hadn't realized all, all the parallels. It's and like so then I a... find the, the shared ground. They teach me about like my own experience just mm-hmm. by giving me theirs. And so the most cathartic 
thing about this whole process has been my events. Oh yeah. So my bookstore readings, sharing, my, yeah. My my uh, my uh, Q and A sessions, right. right. And in the past, I've been a bit too maybe um, cynical about Q and A sessions, right? Mm. And and I've been guilty, I think, in the past of of when somebody puts up their hand um, at a book event, not mine, just mm-hmm. you know, oh event, yeah, and it's more of a comment. Like kids, ask a, a question. question. Make sure you have a question. Right. <laughs> so I've been very hard on the on those people in my life, and now I realize that that um, those are some of the the uh, most important moments at like a book event. Right, is to witness live somebody trying to form a question that they don't have yet. Right. Um. You're literally watching a person grow in front of you. Mm. And what higher privilege is there than that, mm. right? Right, right. So now I make sure to read only for like a few minutes. Yeah. Do like a short interview on stage and then have half an hour to 45 minutes for like a Q&A when all the good stuff happens, right? I think I, I like the Q&As. Well, they're just amazing, yeah. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, writers on writing is always fun. Uh, but that comes to our next question because you have your novel, Shuck, the protagonist, the emerging porn star and hustler. He is also an aspiring writer. And I'm like, mm. hmm, is Daniel writing about himself? Who knows? Uh, but He was a bad writer, but anyways, go he on. He was, well, I liked I liked the, the thread about the rejection letters. I thought mm. they were very clever and funny. Uh, and everyone's like, you know, Erica, celebrate your rejection letters and, <laughs> right, you know, we just put them on your fridge. And I mean, I wouldn't say that I've submitted enough to get enough rejection letters. But I always take a little screenshot, send it to my my friends. But yeah, so he's always like, he, he doesn't seem, yeah, it doesn't seem like he's doing very well in terms of getting published. But I just want to read the the his comment oh, sure. on yes. getting published. I thought this was spot on. Um I'm doing my best to stay positive, but I had to tell you that trying to get published, a word I've grown to hate, feels like buying raffle tickets for a prize that's already been given out by a church that's already burned down. Eventually, you're going to stop trying. And this is like, he the, the book's set in the 90s, right? I think, mm-hmm. yeah. So, I mean, I feel like it's only gotten worse <laughs> with yeah. publishing, right? And... Yeah, it's like, it's a struggle for write, right? Because there's this feeling like if you don't get published, you're not a real writer. And it's just mm-hmm. everyone's like, who's published, who's not? But how yeah. did you persevere? I guess you'd already been published when you wrote this novel. But like, it's just, it's a little discouraging, the publishing, like the publishing industry. How did you, you know, keep writing, keep mm-hmm. submitting, putting yourself out there until you got published? Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, so I started off like in little magazines, right? So mm-hmm. Fiction in uh, digital mags in the early 2000s were just like a wonderful place, right? Mm-hmm. Like a really fertile, creative place of like all kinds of writers mm-hmm. uh, um, just having fun in these like, yeah. in these like di- digital realms, terribly designed sites, but mm-hmm. that were but that were a f- fun to visit, right? Mm-hmm. And fun to share. So that was my my debut into writing and so when i got rejections i would just kind of um handle it 
And then I got more. And <laughs> then I got more. And it leads to a self-doubt pretty quickly. Right. Um, I think, though, I began to have fun with the um, querying process. Okay. And to try to put little bits of my own writing into the query letters themselves and to make them works of art or mm-hmm. or to make them pieces of writing, right? Right. And then I was like submitting two things, my piece and my letter. So right? it was another project and yeah. it was, yeah. Yeah. And um, I just kind of uh, persevered. And, and I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure part of that, my ability to like withstand rejection comes from being a minister as mm-hmm. a kid and knocking oh, on yeah. doors and having door them like door. slammed on your face. <laughs> um, so you would say I was conditioned to like accept rejection and even maybe to uh, condescendingly pity the people rejecting me, right? Just like, I'm special. I'm one of the <laughs> chosen people here. I'm going to keep going here, right? So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's, I kind of uh, joke about like, the fact that like I left the church the, where like I was knocking on doors and selling books and talking at the podium to join like another church, the Church of Books, where I'm knocking on doors, selling books, mm-hmm. talking from podiums. I'm doing the same damn things, Eric. Right. Just, <laughs> just more on my own terms now, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, I began to, to, I think it was, if I can use the word cathartic, to write about my rejection letters mm-hmm. in shock. Yeah. And that was my way of handling it, right? Right. You know, if I'd been um, stung by the, by the rejections or if like I found them impersonal um, or sometimes even, even, like, even like too personal. And, and to this day, I don't know if I prefer uh, a form rejection or, a pre- or if I prefer something really detailed like, hey... We really loved your writing, but but like unfortunately, it doesn't work for us, and here's why, you know. <laughs> so, right, it's kind of like a give and take. It depends right. on the mood. Um, nowadays, I'm inclined to really embrace any feedback I get because it comes it comes a lot less like frequently now. I think. Right? Yeah, it's mostly form, form stuff. Yeah, is the way, yeah, you know. And the days of an editor writing like a one-page rejection, you know, no, it's kind of gone. I mean, you don't it? even yeah, get the exactly. form rejections, right? right? Like even I, yeah, because yeah. so you just never hear from people yeah. for yeah. years or ever, right? Yeah. Right. And I think rejection is a chance to, um, to kind of, uh, you know, move forward, right? And to kind of f- find your audience. And so the more rejections you, you get... In theory, the closer you are to actually having something published, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's um, not this. Let's move on. Exactly. But um, I continue to deal with it in all kinds of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I think I've worked it into my processes of being a writer, mm-hmm. you know? So to like expect a certain number or like, or like a certain percentage of rejections um, for whatever it is I'm doing right. has, has just become part of my creative process. Right. Okay. Well, how well adjusted of you? I mean, I'm trying. I'm not yeah. that mature. 
I'm a little less mature than than uh, what it is like I'm telling to you. you know? <laughs> so the bar. The sting still yeah. is felt, right? No, it's <laughs> it's hard. But um, but yeah, like speaking of, I guess I don't know. Maybe maturity is the wrong word. But I wanted to talk. I I I love the sobriety story. I like I'm like obsessed with addictions a little bit. And you like most, uh, not most, but like you like many people who have been through trauma found alcohol and like many writers you also found alcohol and you're like it was a complicated relationship and you felt like you needed to drink to write and a lot of writers feel this way Uh, but then you found that your drinking became problematic and I think eventually you decided you're going to quit drinking Mm -hmm. Uh, but I just felt like for somebody who grew up in a cult the main sort of discourse for sobriety is AANA Alcoholics Anonymous, these 12-step programs where they're like, okay, we're going to admit we're powerless uh, over alcohol. We have to surrender to a higher power. Uh, and I think that these, I'm really glad these places exist because I overall, well, I don't think they're a force of evil in the world. I think they have saved lives, um, but I could see, and I think they are limited. I think they are not the whole answer. And I could see for someone like you that you would be kind of like allergic to this discourse so yeah how is quitting drinking gone for you i mean assuming Mm -hmm. you still maybe like you know how it's a process right but how (laughs) how did that go um it's gone well but yeah but it wasn't always you know so good um yeah it just it um began with me understanding that what i call um addiction does match everyone else's definition Mm-hmm. especially like around booze right so so i mean um i grew up with with uh you know people for whom drinking like 24 beers in a night was not entirely out of the uh, the right possibility right so but i mean like like uh that's never any quantity i consumed right mm-hmm. so so i had to kind of uh create my own definition of addiction even though like it didn't it didn't match other people's um that I knew right mm-hmm. who were either according to to them drinking too much or doing or doing a too many drugs right or just um losing grip on their lives due to attitudes around substances, and so I had to not feel like an imposter, I think right, right? you felt you didn't yeah. belong in the addiction community almost right. Yeah, almost like it wasn't that bad, right? Right. Or it wasn't bad enough to be called an addiction, or or um, um, bad enough to warrant going into something called recovery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, to to uh, this day, I don't I don't always use the word recovery, even though I put together a very concerted effort to to um, to um, to stop a habit that that had become quite destructive in my life, mm-hmm. especially to my health, um, due to like its its a uh, its a uh, its uh, regularity, not due to its quantity, mm-hmm. but due to its regularity. And like the relationship you have about yeah. Yeah. needing it, the dependency. Yes, exactly. And so, was it hard to quit? Like, yeah, it was hard. It was yeah. like, you know, I kind of I kind of a Jones for a bit, like in. And um, the effects of that 
maybe like a bit uh, cranky. It actually, it actually kind of reminded me of when I quit smoking. Oh, uh, I hear that's very difficult. 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it made me very cranky. Like it, like it, like it made me yell at people, you know? Mm, yeah. I was not uh, a pleasant person to be around. And, and I kind of um, lump in alcoholism with uh, smoking, I think, in my mind, because, you know, there was a time when the, they overlapped, of course, mm-hmm. in my life, and one kind of ma- made the other one easier easier to do. And I remember this one moment where I was on the nicoderm patch, mm-hmm. and I would take it off to have a cigarette. <laughs> and then I called the nicoderm hotline, and I think I even like told them that. And they hung up on me. They were just they like, the screw you. Why would you do that? I was a legal liability to them, right? And oh. so they just like. They couldn't give you advice because yeah. you were like, am I going to die or something? And they couldn't. The phone went dead. Oh, no. <laughs> so that made me, I thought about that actually when I was like uh, quitting alcohol. I thought about how I'd done smoking and, and um, or quit smoking. And I wanted to do things a little bit better. And so I did that. And. I was actually uh, writing this book while I was doing that, you know, mm-hmm. so, um, and then thinking about, hmm, as you said, like, I'm actually uh, super happy that the, that uh, AA exists and, uh, mm-hmm. and other uh, similar groups exist, but why are they so churchy? Like, very churchy. Is there a way to have, right. you know, conversation that uh, doesn't surrender to a higher power? Yeah, you know, even what the, if the high power yeah. is you, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, they like some groups they, they try to be like all encompassing about it, like a yeah. higher power of your understanding, but it's just it's such a turn off for people, like it's a huge turn off, and right? and it's also, triggering as well. Yeah, and to admit you're powerless, like it's just I don't know, I don't know that addiction is a life sentence, like that. It, I like mm-hmm. it was, I, I only learned this recently, well, I kind of did know this, but like. It was made for men in the 30s, right? So it doesn't take into account that not all of us are really well served by becoming these humble servants, right? Like, because a lot of us have sort of been like minorities, women are, we're already been conditioned to be good, obedient people, right? So there, the AA uh, formula is not, it's not nuanced. It's not made for like. And I think about Jehovah's Witness women who are trained that they are powerless and mm-hmm. then and then what if they're later like in recovery and told that they're that th- they continue to to be to be a powerless like it's yeah. just a message that that yeah. uh, doesn't serve anybody mm-hmm. yeah so yeah i mean i'm very interested in different uh different avenues of recovery and but it's mm-hmm. like with everything it, i think it just takes a lot of things to quit things it takes a lot of yeah. different coping skills, different people, different, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. routines. So, well, congratulations on joining the sobriety club. I also quit drinking in 2018. Oh, wow. So yeah, but I didn't, I didn't identify as like an alcoholic or anything. I just thought my life will be easier. It's just simpler. You know, I didn't find it that fun to drink. I found mm-hmm. it was fun one out of five times, maybe. And then I wouldn't sleep well. I get depressed. Like I think anybody with a mental health issue should look at what they're like if they're drinking, because hmm. um, right. I think it can definitely affect your mood. Um, okay, so one more question before the 
our general questions. Um, because we are apartment fire twins and I, my apartment went burned down in 2008, 2019. You also had an apartment fire, which is kind of poetic because like your whole childhood, you're waiting for the fires of Armageddon and then like your whole world burns down when you're an adult. Uh, but I guess like for me, it wasn't this great tragedy. Like it was a very pivotal event, but it wasn't, it was not the worst thing that ever happened to me, not the hardest thing that ever happened to me. I found it sort of like cleansing to kind of look at my relationship to stuff, like what was meaningful, what wasn't, like just to sort of like start over. I felt like there was this big sense of possibility. I felt like people were so kind to me. So yeah, how was it, what was it like to have your house burned down? Mm. It was destabilizing. Mm -hmm. um, and it was also regenerative. Mm -hmm. I think as you said, creatively, I instantly started writing about fire. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was fascinated by it. And it taught me a lot about community and the people who showed up for us. Uh -huh. um, it was wonderful to be, to be a part of that. And also it's a way to, to prioritize, you know, your life and think, hmm, what's important to me? What objects mm -hmm. are important to me and why? Yeah. Especially when, when post-fire, the, the, uh, the uh, um, city inspector says, okay, you have six hours oh, yeah, yeah. to clear out what's salvageable. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. And then you have like 10 friends asking you, what should I put in this box, man? And I'm like, huh, what should you put in that box? You know? Yeah, right. So the, the pressure of that like moment was really key to, I think, uh, crystallizing a new understanding of importance, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but the smell of the smoke um, lingered for like a long time and um as we looked for like a new apartment uh and were turned down time and time again i began to imagine that these potential new landlords could smell it on us but it, this was your trauma that you could smell like you felt you just felt like you yeah. could always smell smoke wherever you were yeah okay yeah. but it wasn't it because was like nose. after a while it was washing like you wouldn't have smelled the smoke after. No, it's probably washing out, but like yeah. I still smelled it. And so I thought others could s s s smell it, you know? And, and, and like, if you were like a landlord, um, would you let smoke s s smelling people into your house? Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a fear there too. Right. And yeah, it was, it was a bit traumatic from like a tactile mm -hmm. point of view, not from the things that we'd actually lost, you know, which in the end, it wasn't much, Mm -hmm. um, um, materially, but, right. and, and you, how, how oh. did this happen? Well, it was an electrical, it was an accident. I was home when it happened. I was working from home after I had a, I'd done some storytelling the night before and I had a performance hangover. So I was like, not going to the office today. And then I, yeah, I mean, the power went out, the internet broke. And then there's like all these fire trucks coming in my back alley. And I was like, Someone burned toast or I, I don't know. I was like, well, we'll get back soon. I grabbed my laptops, walked out in my socks. And then it's like twin tower smoke coming out of the bottom floor. And I was on the second floor. 
I don't know. It was invigorating because I I found that like I have spent my life in a state of hypervigilance, like waiting for the catastrophe. Yes. And then it's like, whatever, I'm ready for this. You know, I've been waiting (laughs) for a catastrophe all this time. Um, I mean, I did definitely have a meltdown every day. I think it was tactile. Like it was hard to eat properly and sleep properly. It was sort of like high, but I kind of enjoy it. I'm like have I I I find it kind of fun to be in a crisis. Like, I wouldn't say fun, but I get mm-hmm. like infused with yeah, energy, yeah, which sure. is like, and I'm just like, hi everybody, guess what? My house burned down, and like I was like living on granola, and yeah, it would usually there'd be some sort of decision combined with poor blood sugar maintenance that would right. cause me to cry once a day, but then the rest of it, I was like chipper chipper. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, for me, it was just like affordable rent. That was like a big stress. Cause I, Mm -hmm. you know, I had this like miracle apartment and then, um, and then I didn't know where the, the market wasn't very good at the time. And I jumped around. I, I, I did house sitting, cat sitting, plant sitting. Mm -hmm. I went to Mexico for a few months to Mm -hmm. sort of like postpone committing to another apartment but then there was the pandemic so I had to like emergency fly back I I counted I was on 17 mattresses before I landed this apartment so I was like didn't have a place to live for almost seven months and I mean it's hard because after the pandemic like the pandemic affected us a lot too right but I find that I'm very attached to this apartment I'm not attached to stuff. I have a very hard time acquiring possessions. Like mm-hmm. I have like books, pictures of books on the walls, only like I'm a, on a, like a library books diet almost. And just like I bought this standing desk like last summer and it took me so long to decide on it. Like it's just like all possessions are a big process. Yes. Um, and it's only been four years, right? So I think that it it will get more like... I think there's more healing to do, but like I'll be maybe a little less weird about stuff. Like I think I'm a little weird about possessions, but I was a little bit minimalist before, but I, yeah, I feel like just, and I might just, I don't know, just like every, every time there's a change in season, I miss my sweaters, but like, otherwise mm. I'm fine with the things I lost. Like, but I, I'm like, Oh, I don't have that sweater anymore. <laughs> like forget but yeah, I did. I, I liked the sense of possibility and I liked overall my coping skill. Like I'm just like, because, you know, I'm somebody who can get very upset about something very small. And mm-hmm. with the fire, I was like braver than I, I think most people would have expected me to be. So I, I, I like that I had that memory mm-hmm. and I love my apartment. So I'm happy, That's you gorgeous. know, where I landed. So, Yeah. Are you ready for the listener question? Sure. Okay. Dear Erica and Daniel, I live in the Bible Belt, and my parents have raised me fundamentalist since birth. Following God's advice to go forth and multiply, they keep having kids, and I am the oldest of nine siblings. My parents regularly pray while screaming. They think they can cure sick people by putting their hands on them. Speak in tongues, the works. They hate all people of other faiths and anyone even associated with the LGBTQ plus community. They think being gay or different is a disease caused by the devil and that homosexuality can be cured. They do not know I am an atheist, nor that I do not feel like I was born into the right gender. 
My father was extremely upset when I didn't want to take up sports and always asks why I can't be more masculine like other boys my age. I felt like I should have been born a girl my entire life in that I cannot remember a time when I did not feel this way. If I told my parents, I have no idea what they would do. Maybe they disown me, maybe something else. I don't know. I am too afraid to find out, given how I have seen them act towards people different from them. I am not happy here. I tried wearing a simple, a simple pink bracelet just to remind myself of who I really am without it being too obvious. My dad took it away from me, saying, it makes you look like a fag. My dad grew up Jewish and after finding Christianity, stopped talking to his parents when he could not convert them. I don't know how long I can continue living in this Bible-thumping family, pretending I am someone I am not. But the dangers of telling the truth are so real. What is your advice for surviving this horrible situation? Please let me know what you think. Love, young transgender atheist caught in end times. Daniel. Erica. Wow. Terrible. Mm-hmm. It's heavy, yes? Yeah. Not good. It's heavy. It's all there. It's, uh, it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, the author of this post also knows who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if they know how, how strong that is and how much it means to say all that they just did. Mm-hmm. Especially in the context of like of like where they live and who their family is, I don't know. What do you think? And they're only like fifteen, right? So, yeah, to have that's a good point to have that strength, the strength of self, the knowledge of self at that age, self awareness. Yeah, Yeah. will you know serve them? Can serve them well Mm -hmm. as they. Yeah, I just have like like a lot of of uh, feelings about that. I mean. I want them to know that um, that even if it seems like there's no way out, right, or that there's no uh, love for them, and and there is probably a huge lack of love or or like a feeling of not being loved. Um, it's difficult to like imagine that on the outside of that. So after leaving that that's a terrible restrictive environment, that there are people who will value them and. Mm-hmm. Who will who will give them pink bracelets and celebrate their love of pink bracelets and celebrate hundreds their of pink identity? Bracelets. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and and um, who who will uh, be f- there for them? Like moments of change, moments of crisis, mm-hmm. um, and moments of joy. Um, it's hard to like imagine that, but but I think if there's anything I would want them to uh, uh, know is that that love does exist outside, you know, mm-hmm. we, we promise it, right? Yeah. It exists. And, and, um, strangers that they don't know yet will love them in ways that they've never been loved before. Mm-hmm. But, um, but also that the status quo isn't okay. No. And, and, but how do you leave? I mean, especially, you know, here we are in the city, right? We're like yeah. in Montreal, population several million if you're in a a small community a small rural town or village how do you physically leave at the age of 15 15. except for either waiting or running away or leaving like 
before you have any resources. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that community can start to be found online. Um, I'm sure it already is in this person's yeah. case, right? I mean, I don't uh-huh. know what's your take on that. Well, yeah, I think that in terms of safety, because of their age, it's like I always, you know, Dan Savage. Yeah. Yeah. So, like Dan Savage of the Savage Love Cast, he always says, you know, you may need to delay coming out for your personal safety and for like, because you, you're, you know, you're 14, 15, you don't have the resources. Many LGBTQ kids, many is particularly trans kids end up homeless, end up at risk of suicide. Yeah. So like your physical safety comes first. Yeah, and so, absolutely. yeah, I, I think that's a good idea to find your community online first and then eventually make a plan to get the hell out of there, right? Like get a part-time job, get like, you know, find a place you maybe want to go to school, like, but it's, it's not, it's, I think the exit strategy is not immediate because you, Mm -hmm. it's just like, if you don't have your physical needs met, it's not going, you're not going to have the freedom that you want. Right. (laughs) Like. Exactly. And also, also lining up the, the, uh, the, um, support that you'll need takes time as well. Mm -hmm. Right. It takes like an exit plan. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, uh, uh, first thing like is knowing that you need out and then, and then how do you do it? Right. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So we remain available to be talked to, right. And to yeah. offer advice and, uh, and yeah. And it's just been, um, a real big privilege to, to, um, talk to people in need, um, especially young, like, uh, queer and trans queer people kids, right? yeah. mm-hmm. across Canada who, who even though we've made like a lot of advances in terms of their rights and protections, they're still being clawed back mm-hmm. every single day. They're also losing rights every day, all depending, all depending where they are. And it, it takes a lot of adults in, in our world to, um, to um, step up and mm-hmm. to be, to be a bigger people. And protect their rights. Yeah, because it's not fair that, I mean, it's great that we have the community we do in Montreal, but like, mm-hmm. it's just like, you shouldn't be thrown out of your hometown. Like there should be, it should be more widespread acceptance yeah. and an opportunity for community. Like, and yeah. So, I mean, for your exit plan, I would, you know, find, look online again and see mm-hmm. where are the, where are the great vibrant cities where there's a thriving queer community where you'll find your people and and that's great like go there the cities mm-hmm. are great but it, it eventually we can't just like you know just accept that like okay in florida there are no gay people right like right. it's just uh it's it's not acceptable i think this is still going on right the it's get it gets better project with dan savage i think there's a website i'll i can link to it in the show notes but where um where queer kids they post videos about their journeys and they have gotten out of their families some people have come out to their families and it you know often that comes with rejection that gets um repaired over time i don't get the sense that this is a safe place i would not come out to your family until you are financially independent from them uh you know, maybe you could come out to them once you you have your feet on the ground somewhere else, somewhere far away, hopefully. But yeah. uh, but they have stories of hope on this. I think it's a website. Anyways, Google the It Gets Better Project for some 
solidarity and hope. Um, yeah, I think the online community, starting with an online community, could be very healing and helpful. Mm-hmm. And there's also like another aspect here as well as the self-declaration as an atheist, right? Which mm-hmm. is a big statement to make in a religious community of that composition, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that, I mean, there's so much possibility there in terms of like learning and in terms of getting support of other people who who uh, don't believe in the God that you were raised in. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's another community, not just the, not just the queer community. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, people are waiting for you with open arms. Absolutely. So go find your people. Okay, so now everyone's favorite part, um, routines. So Yay. Daniel Allen Cox, do you have a morning routine? Do I? I don't know. I mean, I think I do. I, um, I uh, make a pot of coffee and read. Okay. As long as I can avoid thinking about my emails. <laughs> okay. How much, what kind of coffee? Real caffeinated coffee. Real caffeinated coffee. Okay. Yeah. Do you put anything in it? No, I drink it black. Okay, yeah. okay, and no so cigarettes I've, anymore. No cigarettes okay. anymore. So I've also I've also cut down on my uh, coffee intake over the years, just for health reasons. And now I make a very prescribed amount, mm-hmm. um, in exactly the same way every morning, and I use it as my reading f- and my like like a wake up fuel. Um, mm-hmm. And I typically wake up earlier than anyone else mm-hmm. in the house. So that's my quiet time. Mm-hmm. And and I use it to kind of, you know, plan for the day as well. And so mm-hmm. as I'm reading, I'm starting to lose focus on the book and starting to think about like like my day mm-hmm. and everything I have to do. And then pe- people um, um, start waking up, emails start popping in, mm-hmm. and then I change mm-hmm. what time do you wake up like six seven it depends between between six and and seven thirty depends okay. on the day yeah okay i think that's a good start to the day reading and coffee it's a lot of Feels people's favorite things yeah. yeah okay and then what about your creative routine that really depends <laughs> you know if i'm writing a fiction or nonfiction, um it depends if i'm in a research phase mm-hmm. or in just like a drafting phase if i'm in like a drafting phase i really enjoy that to the max mm-hmm. because i kind of like throw off all the chains and i just i just like write and when i'm drafting a first draft i play music very loudly oh, okay either in my headphones or or um acoustically in the room all depending if i'm alone or not right uh-huh. and uh and then like it's very joyous. So my first draft productions are these are these, you know, very irresponsible and uh, wild romps through text and through all the music I love mm-hmm. love to listen to, right? And then editing is a completely different story. Off goes the music. I I uh, I get a little bit um more reflective and more analytical and uh-huh. then I kind of uh, work on my text like with multiple brains, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I start to think about the finished product and I start to think about uh, the implications of this work being in the world. And so mm-hmm. 
And so having those modes actually helps a lot because I can pretty much tell when I'm in one versus the other. Mm-hmm. And the first drafting is the rarer part, right? Yeah, you so, don't always get into the flow and, yeah, right. Yeah, and so it's rare to begin like a new piece. Mm-hmm. And then I take years to edit that piece. So, Like how many years? Like four? It kind of depends. Ten. Like for not 10, but for like an essay, it'll usually be like, two years okay three years yeah huh. okay that's um, pretty that's pretty good yeah um for this book it was like six years mm-hmm. right but like the the individual pieces of it took like a few years each mm-hmm. um and c- coming back to them and abandoning them and and some i took apart completely and so i dissolved them like like um salt into water and then mm-hmm. and then I I I like reformed them in mm-hmm. some weird like bi- like a bibliomancy. I I put them back together again. Mm-hmm. So your first question asking me about how did it feel to write page one, I have like no memory because right. it was like reformed in something I I think I had dissolved right. Mm-hmm. So that's another mode like the the writing resurrection mode but actually that comes from from years of losing writing to mm. poor you know poor saving habits to microsoft word crashing to oh no okay computer hard drives dying like i've written i've written 5000 word short stories from memory rewritten them oh wow you know, okay after having like lost the files and so I think like a lifetime of actually having lost my writing. Right. Also saving the things like on floppy disk and then mm-hmm. like oh, yeah, floppy those disks disc. becoming, becoming damaged or corrupted mm-hmm. or losing them or also not having a computer that can play them anymore. Right. right? Yeah, absolutely. I've lost tons of writing over the years. Mm-hmm. And I think part of my process is to trust that I can recover this if I need to mm. or I can recover what's important and even taking like a writer like uh M- matt bell he has like an exercise i believe where you write a first draft mm-hmm. and then you try to write it again partially from memory mm-hmm. and in so doing you are like refining different parts of it right um in a way that you wouldn't if you were working with your like original text mm-hmm. right? and maybe you're remembering the most important parts sure. right the parts yeah. that stuck with you yeah and huh. you how do you um oh gosh i yeah. don't know i mean let's lay it out here <laughs> uh well that's it my favorite is draft mode and i i mean i i the book i wrote about falling in love with my 11th therapist i wrote it started with like a hundred thousand words of letters that i'd actually written to him and sent a bunch of them to right so that was that raw material was not that useful, but there was a lot of feeling in it. Uh, and then to work with that, I did like an hour a day for a little while. And then I would feel really bad when I couldn't, I would get in a slump and I would feel bad. So I would take months off and then I would like, okay, here's something I can do. And then I would have like a sort of a binge few months and then, oh, stop again. Oh, so bad. And then, but now I'm finding I'm doing more binge writing. Like Mm. I I have a thing that I want to do and I'll do it. And then I won't write for months, which 
I don't know. I've spent a lot of my life feeling very bad about not writing enough. Mm. And the yeah, last year I've barely, yeah, but you've written lots. The last year I've been more focused on the podcast and I haven't felt bad about not writing. I'm just like, I don't feel bad. Like yeah. I, I, I feel like I'm engaged in something else. And, and so I don't know when like, I, I've written like a, f- a handful, not even like maybe three things the last in 2023. And I'm like, huh, I wonder if this is important to me. Like my plan is to kind of like look at that and be like, what are you, what's inspiring for you? What would you like to work on right now? Right. But yeah, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for sharing. I love writing advice. And yeah, the draft time is like the magical time, right? Mm-hmm. We're just like, mm-hmm. goodbye, everybody. And <laughs> you just like are so into it. We're watching an idea just like form out of nowhere. Like, yeah. And because I do it while I'm listening to music, I, I've uh, started to imagine the writing coming from the songs themselves. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, huh, this idea came from this artist, you know? Mm-hmm. Or it came like <clears throat> out of these notes even, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a bit of like, I guess uh, I have to uh, cop to a certain amount of like mysticism there. Right. That I'm not very ashamed to say. Yeah. Oh, right. Because you're like, cause are you a fervent atheist? Not even, like, how does that work? I don't have a use for God. So right. I guess you can say okay. that. But, but nor do I really like join the atheists community. Because that's per like se, because a fundamentalist community too, right? It is Fund- a fundamentalist yeah. community. Like, I'm glad that you mentioned that, right? Yeah. There is, um, I was talking about this actually over the holidays with, with, uh, with, uh, family about um there's a certain like doctrinaire position mm-hmm. that is so hardline right inflexible and it reminds me a lot of the stuff i left behind yeah it's like and it's like chosen people it's like i'm right you're wrong yeah. like kind of the yeah. special the special person situation too yeah. of it like yeah so you you're actually giving me very interesting questions to think about after this after this podcast is over erica why don't i use the word atheist why don't i use the word recovery why am i afraid to use words right Mm -hmm. and i'm a writer and so that's a very that's a very worrisome proposition right (laughs) (laughs) Uh, right but it's it's um it's interesting that that these that these uh these uh, communities that i on paper belong to I'm still not fully a part of yes. and and it could also have to do with the with the skepticism of like of like um joining things or mm-hmm. of or of uh joiner culture declaring of, yourself something yeah mm-hmm. and very much like rah 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 mm-hmm. let's go and let's do this official labels official labels right maybe is it slight mm-hmm. allergy to this to extreme allergy. allergy to yeah. It, yeah okay huh okay so mm-hmm. then but you're not yes you're not against there being some sort of like force when you're listening to music sort of infusing into mm-hmm. your writing and you don't mind when there's words and like if there's words in the songs and you're writing it's not distracting strangely it's not yeah okay mm-hmm. yeah because i guess if it's music you already know really well that's i found if i really know the music then it's not as distracting but right. yeah Oh, that's great. Well, we love music and a song is coming, everybody. So hold tight. So last question. If there was one thing you could change about the world, what would it be? Only one thing? Well, 
Yeah. Um, if I have to, to uh, um, think about like a recent pet peeve that has begun to irk me more and more, it's the war on earnestness. Mm, yeah. I find there's a lot of coming down on people who are trying to be their authentic selves and oh. who are trying to show their enthusiasm about things and who get talked badly about if they don't show a certain kind of almost like artistically cultivated cynicism mm. when they are when they are like like uh, doing like a book review or talking about cinema or just even uh, talking about the world or even themselves and so mm-hmm. this this posture of um looking down on mm-hmm. earnest you know you know mm-hmm. oh there there he uh, goes again being earnest on main mm-hmm. um i think we should look more at the cynicism than at the earnestness yeah and where is that coming from why is it being being perpetuated mm-hmm. and what exactly is the intrinsic artistic value to being cynical mm-hmm. when you're talking about the world? That's what I want to know more about. Okay. Less cynicism, maybe pro like. Or letting people be authentic. Yeah, you know? be themselves. Mm-hmm. If, they, if they're actually joyful about something, if they're enthusiastic about something, mm-hmm. listen to that enthusiasm because it it's, uh, tells you like a lot about about the world mm-hmm. as much as your cynicism does yeah why is there why why this fear of sincerity right why this that's fear like, of sincerity yeah okay. exactly um i think the the war on sincerity um comes from like a place of fear right mm-hmm. um and it comes also from distrust it comes from from generations of people and groups and organizations putting on a fake smile mm-hmm. and telling others to put on a fake smile. And so th- then when someone puts on like a real smile, right. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. right as fake. Mm-hmm. Right? How, do, how do you believe in the smiles? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that we are ready to do our song and we, I think we should film it so everyone can see mm. our smiles, <laughs> our real smiles. So All right. everybody hold tight. We are going to be coming back in a hold second tight. with... A really great song. Okay, so thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the other side. As promised, we are back, and this is the Half Bad Ukulele segment, everybody's favorite. And the selection today is Torn by Natalie Imbruglia. Uh, Daniel Allen Cox chose this hit from the 90s maybe early 2000s anyways it's everyone it's it's a fabulous song so daniel why did you choose why did you choose this song hmm. well being out of faith you know as as uh Imbrilia says was uh something i think on my mind heading into this uh, podcast um in terms of like a breakup letter to our friend jesus as we oh, keep yeah. on talking about <laughs> and also when i went to hmv music and their last their last uh, week in business, they were almost out of stock. And one of the the only things left in the store was a fifty six dollar LP copy of this song. Fifty six dollars. Fifty six dollars. Oh wow! A copy of Torn was 
one of the last things for sale at HMB in Montreal, which I found astounding. I'm all out of faith. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I'm all out of records, I guess, too. So did you buy it? I did not. No. Okay. I could not bring myself to spend $56 on Torn, but I will sing it with you, however. Yeah, and I think... People will be throwing $56 at us in increments after we play it and post it on social media. So yeah, everyone's in for a treat. Remember, the you need to look up the lyrics and sing along for best mm-hmm. results. Okay, so here we go. We practiced a lot. And we, and we won't do it alone, and so we're counting on you. Yeah, okay. So here it comes. Okay. I thought I saw a man brought to life. He was warm, he came around, and he was dignified. Showed me what it was to cry. But you couldn't be that man I adore. You don't seem to know, seem to care what your heart is for. I don't know him anymore. There's nothing where he used to lie. Conversation has run dry. That's what's going on. Oh, nothing's fine. I'm torn. I'm all out of faith. This is how I feel. Cold and I'm ashamed. Lying naked on the floor. Illusion never changed into something real. Wide awake and I can see the perfect sky is torn. You're a little late. I'm already torn. So I guess the fortune teller's right. Should have seen just what was there and not some holy light. But you crawled beneath my veins and now I don't care. I have no luck. I don't miss it all that much. There's just so many things. I can't can't touch, touch, I'm I'm torn torn. I'm all out of faith This is how I feel Cold and I'm ashamed Lying naked on the floor Illusion never changed Into something real Wide awake and I can see The perfect sky is torn You're a little late I'm already torn Okay, that was pretty spectacular. Uh, thank you so much, Daniel Allen Cox. Thank you. Erica. Thank you so much for doing this podcast so generously. So where can people find you online? Well, I'm on Instagram and also at my at my website, danielallencox.net. And I have all of my events on there, upcoming events. Um, and I'll be speaking at uh, different places um, in the spring and the fall. So stay tuned. Okay. Yes. We will look out for that. And meanwhile, read all of Daniel's books, especially I felt the end before it came. And I think that's it. Got anything else? We're good. That's it for me. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you on the other side. Okay. Love you. Bye. That was so splendid. Thank you so much, Daniel. And thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I think you will also love Chill Creative Flow, my episode with Jeff Gandell, which launched on November 7th, 2023. And you might also want to check out my two-part episode, 
with Paul de Touré. Paul was one of my first guests, and yes, I think you will really like part one, default adult settings, and especially part two, default creative settings. So scroll back through the archives and you will find Paul's episodes from May of 2023. And I'll also link all this in the show notes. All right. So thank you as always to my darling big sister, Tess Levitt, my creative and technical advisor, Sherwin Tijia, and my dearly departed aunt, Eileen Gunn. Thank you to you, as always, for listening all the way to the end. I can't wait to see you so soon. And until then, let us rock out with the theme song. Okay, you ready? Here I come. Okay. This is your strange and beautiful life. Okay, thanks so much, everybody. Have a reasonable to fabulous day. Can't wait to see you in the neighborhood soon. Love you. Love you. Bye.